Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. So Daniel Ricciardo and McLaren have agreed to part ways at the end of the current F1 season, bringing a premature end to his tenure at the Woking-based squad. In the wake of the Australians' ongoing difficulties to get on terms with his teammate Lando Norris during their two years alongside each other, McLaren began the process several weeks ago to agree on a separation. With McLaren still hoping to sign Oscar Piastri for next year, who's currently in a contract dispute with Alpine, it began discussions with Ricardo about a termination of his current deal so they could open up the slot. Those talks have now reached a conclusion, with McLaren and Ricardo agreeing this is his final season with the team. The news announced first by the Australian driver earlier today, ahead of the Belgian Grand Prix. Well, Ricardo joined McLaren back in 2021 on a three-year contract and the former Red Bull and Renault driver having a final say in whether or not to see through the final year they say having until recently said he was fully committed to seeing things out despite frustrations but amid the reality of McLaren's desire to make a change and things not improving as much as hoped as the team in the end both parties agreed that continuing did not make sense so to dissect that news and what Daniel should do next what of his career where did it go wrong at McLaren and what drive could keep him on the Formula One grid. I'm going to bring you some audio from our sister channel. Flat Chats is the podcast hosted by Stuart Codling. Uh, Codders is the editor of GP Racing, our monthly magazine, which, quick plug, you're very welcome to subscribe to. Get it on your, your doormats once a month. Uh, they got together with uh, Mark Gallagher and Autosports F1 editor Matt Q discuss all things McLaren, Ricardo, and some other F1 bits as well. If you like this audio, by the way, uh, why don't you search your podcast apps for Flat Chat and subscribe to that channel. It's a monthly podcast to go alongside the magazine, and you can get that 
every single month. Enjoy. Rip up that contract and fire your manager. It's time for another flat chat. Formula One's summer break is over, but whose career is over? Uh, the latest issue of GP Racing magazine is already on subscribers' doormats. It's appearing on the newsstands, and it's asking a question. What next for Daniel Ricciardo? And, uh, yeah, as we close this edition of the magazine for press, and indeed as we record this podcast, there are a lot of unknowns surrounding the driver market. Uh, whether they are unknown knowns or known unknowns is still unknown known. Uh, joining me to shine a torch down this particular Rumsfeldian rabbit hole is Mark Gallagher from from a, a marina in Holland. Not a Morris marina, but an actual marina. No, an actual, an actual marina in Holland, where um, rather bizarrely, when we arrived here a couple of days ago, there was a, a local kind of fair, kind of, the kind of thing that you would see in any seaside uh, resort, kind of dodging cars and all the rest of it, and slap bang in the middle of it all was a huge Max Verstappen merchandise truck, like a, a transporter, which seemed to be being ignored by everyone, mainly because the prices were too high. Um, but <laughs> uh, but I can't I can vouch for the fact that uh, Verstappen mania remains alive and well all over Holland, and they're all madly looking forward to the forthcoming Dutch Grand Prix. Well, it's coming, and. and- Probably, uh, we're about to introduce someone who may actually be going to the Dutch Grand Prix because uh, just about to rocket out the door to head to Spa, Frank Auchan, packing his suitcase. There are videos available uh, on YouTube telling you how to pack your suitcase for a Grand Prix. Uh, unfortunately, they, they, they don't tell you to not forget to switch the gas off on your way out. It's Autosports Matt Q. Hello, Codders. Uh I will remember to switch the gas off as I've been uh, slapped with an unexpected energy bill from the company uh, forgetting that we exist and now deciding me to charge charge me for 18 months worth of gas. But I'm not doing Zanvor. I'm doing Spa and then Monza, but I did have the privilege of going to uh, Zanvor last year. And even at, I think about two weeks before the race, they announced it would be capped at two thirds capacity as sort of a legacy of COVID. And even that atmosphere was... Uh, was superb for anyone going for the for the full fully attended Grand Prix later this year. I'm sure it'd be quite a spectacle, especially with Red Bull on their current form. That's how we spread the joy of triple headers in the modern era of not actually working your staff's fingers to the bone. We have a nice little division of labour, don't we? You sort of swap around with Alex Kalinorkas. Well, I'm you? a young snowflake, so I can't do three weekends back to back to back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're like that when I were a lad. So for this month's GP racing cover, we we engage in what we describe as a little bit of risky business. And I'm not referring to the early cinematic canon of of Tom Cruise. We thought we'd get some perspective from Daniel Ricciardo, who, as well as being one of Formula One's most popular and bankable drivers, just look at how many times he's on Drive to Survive. He's also one of the most at-risk, great overtaker, a Grand Prix winner, but it's not going well for him. We knew he was fighting to save his career. We knew that he was in trouble at McLaren. We were interested in the timing because this magazine, obviously on the newsstands ahead of Monza, and it's at Monza last year where Daniel turned things around, sort of. 
I thought, well, tell you what, let's let's give Oleg Karpov a hospital pass and get him to interview someone whose career is very mission critical at the moment. And Oleg did a great job. He was very much in the eye of the storm when he wrote this feature. It's a very honest and revealing interview with Daniel. So, Matt, uh, Daniel talks about going back to basics and just driving the car in this feature. The question is, what does he have to do to basically earn a place in in F1 and not get binned off in favour of someone with money. Well, first off, a hat tip to Oleg for a great feature. And I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to reveal, but um, on his social medias, he's put up uh, he's put up a clip of what he's doing next. And the next driver, I assume, will uh, appear in uh, GP Racing magazine. He's out in, uh, out in Denmark, I believe. Uh, he is. He's been coping in Copenhagen with uh, Kevin Magnussen and uh, off to Ross Kilda, which is where uh, Kevin sort of grew up so we're doing a nice little lifestyle feature and uh, Andrew Ferraro was out there getting some pictures around bridges and castles and bars and lots of Viking stuff I'm promised. Well I'm going to go back to your question about Ricardo going back to basics and I'm going to keep to form so on my uh, flat chat podcast debut last time uh, I, I brought up a Man United uh, uh, analogy I'm going to stick with a the football theme this time go as a as a football fan if 18 months into a football manager's tenure or something, they say, I'm going to go back to basics. That would worry me because then you've done 18 months of progress and, <laughs> and you're throwing it away. When Ricardo's talking about that, it's a little disconcerting. However, I think it might suit him because I would not put Daniel Ricardo in, let's say, the top five um, most critical thinking drivers in F1. And I think that is reflected in his driving. So think to, you know, he's his saying that I lick the stamp and send it and some of those brilliant overtakes when he's come from miles back and, and died for position into the first chicane at Monzo in, in years gone by. That's a driver racing on instinct. And I think perhaps that suits him when when he's not digging down into the into the data quite so much. They've had 18 months of this and I know there's been obviously a, a huge uh, rules change in, in that time. But they're clearly not on top of the problems specific to Daniel Ricciardo. And yes, the McLaren has taken a backward step this year compared to where it was last year. And, and Norris's results are reflecting of that. But it's certainly more critical on uh, on Ricciardo's side of the garage. So it's probably to his benefit not to be too like evaluative of the whole situation. It's also, again, I'm going to stick with a football analogy. I don't think it's a case where you just sort of play yourself into form by having race after race after race. Have a reset. But it's where he's pinning his hope. So if we wind back to Monza last year, a couple of bits of false sort of optimism there. One, Norris was the quicker driver in the final stage of the race. I believe if that's the battle for fifth and sixth position rather than first and second, the, the team probably intervenes and, and swaps them around. You know, if, if I was quoting Al Gore, that's that's the inconvenient truth of that race. It was, Norris was, was the faster driver. And it's also reflective of... of sort of where where Ricardo's been all along with his driving career. The reason that he was the closest run thing to Verstappen or, or slightly ahead of him when Verstappen has vanquished Albon and, and Gasly and 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 uh and, and Kambiat is because he was similar at nailing a car that has a good front end. So long as the front end bites, it doesn't matter what the rear uh, rear does. Verstappen and Ricardo can manage that. Whereas we know McLaren have had a low speed problem, uh, particularly at the sort of high rake era. And now there's a switch to ground effect. Although they have recovered some of that ground, it's been offset by the switch to ground effect and, and how that requires different driving characteristics. That came to fore at the Monza because you've got some a couple of slow speed chicanes and then it's all high speed. And that's where he was able to basically offset the damage most of all. So yes, Monza in a couple of weeks' time might might come to suit him, but I think this is more of a permanent malaise that might be best fixed by moving elsewhere. I loved your 
metaphor of the the football manager being in 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 tenure for a certain amount of time. I was, I was reminded of, of such a thing while watching one of these Sunday morning TV programmes recently where the BBC's or the ex-BBC's Nick Robinson was interviewing one of the uh, Conservative Party leadership hopefuls who was banging on about fresh starts and whatever. And, and, and Nick Robinson, glorious one-liner, said, you can be very surprised when you find out who's been running the country for the past 12 years. But Mark, you know, you've you, you've seen this sort of thing before. You you were in the eye of the storm at, at Jordan when Michael Schumacher um, went migrated from one team to the other without so much as a buy your leave to, to the team boss. I mean, what, what parallels do you see there? I mean, do, you, do you think that perhaps while some people might have been taken by surprise, um, is there an element of carelessness in the Alpine team leadership that they let two drivers slip through their fingers? I, I know that the, the business of there being a July 31st deadline to take up Piastri's option is actually a myth, which is disappointing. It would have been nice if it was true, but even so, it still seems a little. There's there's an Oscar Wilde quote in there somewhere, I think. Unless a manager, a driver, or a team has actually shown the media a contract, which would be highly unusual. The reality is only the parties involved in these things actually know the detail of what's in there. And I mean, you mentioned the the Jordan Schumacher Benetton. A wrestling match which uh, occurred in, in in 91 and actually that was just a kind of in some ways the opening salvo of Jordan's experience and my experience of what the Formula One driver market is like it is a it is a cutthroat uh, environment and and so it should be because we're at the pinnacle of of uh, you know world motorsport and there's a huge amount at stake not just and we're not talking about solely money although that tends to be a rather major factor, but it's also careers. It's about um, potentially the existence of teams from time to time. Teams can very often rely on results and, and particular drivers bringing them results in order to secure their their long term future. And if you look at Alpine, they, or as I call, I still call them Alpine. Uh, but if you look at Alpine, um, the reality is that I think I've said it a few times in, in columns. You know the with Alpine going fully electric as a car manufacturer um, before the new engine regulations come in, and we're going to touch on those a little bit later, I think. You know, I do wonder about Alpine's long-term future in the sport, and particularly if and when Volkswagen Audi Group announced the Porsche and Audi deals, because if you have six or potentially seven car manufacturers coming into uh, into the sport in 2026, the reality is you know, one or two are going to win and there's going to be four or five very dis- disappointed car manufacturers. So there's there's a lot at stake at the moment. I would think Leo DeMeo, uh, Luca DeMeo, the chief executive of, of Renault Group, must look at what's happening at Alpine with a, with a degree of concern because they won um, Daniel Ricciardo's heart or Cyril Abitable did with a very large paycheck. And after effectively a year, the team he announced he was leaving at the end of the second year, um, and now we've had the Alonso thing happen, and carelessness. I, I'm not sure. Perhaps naivety. Uh, I think you can get wrapped up in believing that everybody, you know, what everyone says is is the truth. And if a driver is constantly sitting in press conferences saying, "I love driving for this team," you can start to believe the driver is really committed to you, irrespective of what the contract says. I mean, the reality is when Michael drove for Jordan in Spa in 91, 
you know, we had a great weekend. He enjoyed himself. We loved having him. Uh, from a purely human perspective, you would have thought, wouldn't you, that we were going to continue together. The reality is there are other forces uh, in play. And in the case of the, you know, the Vettel uh, retirement announcement, that was always going to trigger a big move. Uh, Alonso, you know, faced with a prospect of, of not having a long-term commitment. And also, he's now been in the team long enough to realise he's, he's very unlikely to score any anything substantive. Uh, there, so there's a window of opportunity. He knows uh, Lauren Stroll loves having a big name in the team. It's good for the Aston Martin PR, good for the brand. It means whether they win, lose, or draw, they're going to be capturing lots of attention. So, you know, Alonso has played a blinder, and of course, you have to remember you've got none other than Flavio Briatore behind him, one of the one of the architects of the Schumacher to Benetton, um, uh, in, uh, or Schumacher's Benetton years rather. Um, so, there's a lot. Um, there's a kind of a separate world of drivers and contracts and managers who look at things from a very different perspective. It's purely about business. Uh, it's, it's about ensuring longevity of drivers' careers. It's about maximizing the income from that because you don't know how long your career will last. And therefore, if you can, if you can put another 10, 15, 20 million into the bin, that's going to make for uh, you know a big difference in your life later on, and also for your for your kids. And I mean, you are talking about drivers now earning the kind of money that secures not only their lives but the generations that follow them if they're lucky enough to have kids. So the reality is, there's a lot there's a lot on that business side which has got nothing to do with you know the the niceties of the human relationships in the teams and i think what's happened this summer is we've seen that we've had a stark reminder that that brutal world hasn't disappeared i think there's been a slight softening of um expectations around the driver market in recent years because it's been relatively stable and the moves have been quite well planned and you know there's been a lot of long-term driver contracts put in place if we think about charles leclerc we think about max verstappen certainly you know think about lewis hamilton there was obviously a bit of a blip with lewis um uh, with that one-year extension that he did which was very much to do with sort of covid and not being able to get together at the right time so there Essentially, we've had a lot of stability. This summer has been a stark reminder that it's still a cutthroat environment. When I look at Daniel, and, and just echoing what you said, Matt, you know, I thought it was, an, it was a really excellent um, uh, interview that all I did because you know Daniel must be a little bit fed up as, and uh, being asked questions about this. And I mean, all I refers to the fact that he did it in. You know, did it with his usual smile and charm, and took the questions on board and give good answers. I think the, you know, when I read it, the thing I couldn't help thinking about was that he's just had this slightly turbulent time, really, since he left Red Bull Racing. He talked, you know, we all remember about he took that flight, didn't he, where he sat in the plane, you know, thinking about should I stay at Red Bull or should I go, and he he, he decided I'm gonna. I'm going to take the plunge and go to Renault. And someone you know, close to Daniel, close to Red Bull, said to me not long afterwards, he has cashed in. He has taken the money. He's gone for the big paycheck because he knows the World Championship is not going to come to him. Certainly not going to come to him at Red Bull because Max is the number one. Actually, he knows it's not going to come to him at Renault. But if Cyril Abita Bull's, you know, going to pay him a massive amount of money, why would you not take it? Because when you're getting into your 30s, and you realise that that world championship prospect is diminishing, take the big money. I mean, why wouldn't you? Because that's going to set you up for you know forever and a day. Not only did he manage to get that big offer and then deliver the 
the, the podium result that that uh, he and Cyril had talked about. He then got lured to McLaren with another big paycheck, and and of course again, why wouldn't he take that? But as Matt's uh, you know pointed out, it's been a very different experience at McLaren, and. Um, you know, I, I read the detail of that interview several times because the more I read it, the more I felt, wow, Daniel's quite, he's quite confused. You know, on the one hand, he wants to go back to basics, but on the other hand, and he talks about the danger of overthinking. He slightly complains about the fact that he's surrounded by engineers who they just talk data and complexity and try this and try that. And he's talking about, you know, he's, he, he clearly isn't enjoying the complexity and yet the sport is inherently complex you have to be able to deal with that, which means that as a driver, you need to be able to communicate to the team in a way they will listen. And the team has to be prepared to listen in order for the for the driver as a human being to get, get what he needs from the car. The car ultimately has to give him the confidence. You know, it's a difference between sitting on the car and being in the car. And it feels like Daniel's not really in the car because he, he doesn't feel at one with it. And he talks about the fact that, you know, yes, there are some races where he talked about the victory in Monza. You know, he could on that track on a on a circuit that suited the McLaren very well, high speed circuit. You know, he was able to qualify very close to 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 Lando and to, to Max. But then he talks about the days where he's eight tenths of a second off the pace. And and I mean, we we've all looked at it. You look at it, and you. I mean, that's one of the things I do when I get the F one app and I look at the timings. I look at the gaps between teammates constantly because we all know that if it's a, if it's a tenth or two. You know, that's kind of fine. Once it gets to three, four tenths, you start thinking, wait a minute, what's happening there? That once it gets to half a second, you know there's a problem. When it gets to eight tenths, I mean this is there's something fundamentally wrong there. Um and and again, then if we zoom out even further, you've got all this complexity of that he's been dealing with driving the car. And then you zoom out even further into the big picture of his career, that decision to leave Red Bull, his advisor at the time was Glenn Beavis, who had been managing him since 2012. And then he went to Renault. And if you remember, there was a lawsuit because Daniel dropped Glenn. And then there was a, there was a high court case over that. That was during um, 2019, his first year at Renault. Just again, that's all distracting. And it, you know, it means you've got other things to worry about. And you really don't need that kind of stuff going on. And he went from Glenn, a kind of one-man advisor, to a massive sports management company, CAA. You know, you, th you think about the extent to which do managers give you the right advice? or What are managers there to do? Are there managers there to maximize your income? Are managers there to maximize your career longevity? Our managers there to maximize your opportunity to get in a car that wins the world championship for you. Where where is the manager's mindset uh, at? And it's really interesting to to you know I think during my my career both at Jordan then subsequently at Red Bull and and definitely definitely since then you know since I came out of uh, working in in F one teams directly I had a I had occasion to to work with drivers. Um, from time to time and also to work with their managers and i mean I'm, i'd rather not name the name but there was one world champion who i worked with um and he essentially had two management companies and he was paying a total of 30 percent of his salary to those two management companies and i knew all of the people involved and none of them were looking after the driver's best interests and i remember sitting down with him and saying you need to get a lawyer and 
put up an impenetrable barrier between yourself and your entire management because they're not acting in your best interests. And that was born out of that was naivety. It was it was his fault, you know, his father his father influencing some of his decision making as well. And so you look at all of the the detail of what goes on behind the scenes and you really have to question where does where do all the parties actually stand in this? What is their focus? So in Daniel's case, you know, he comes across as such a, a, a great guy. Um, I mean, clearly he's a talented driver. I think, Matt, you know, you're, you're right to point out, you know, Daniel is perhaps a slightly older fashion driver, if I can put it that way. It's kind of, you know, there is an instinct there. There's a racer's instinct there. And, and, and I think with Daniel, what you see is what you get. Um, I think he does need the collective arm around him. Um, and I think coming into McLaren, he's had quite a shock in terms of that, you know, it's, the team's built around Lando Norris. The car does, I mean, they talk about, you know, something in its DNA uh, of the car. And that actually was, that's actually continued from last year into this year, despite the, the regulation change. So, you know, he, he's, had a, he's had a tough uh, experience going from Renault into McLaren. And the price is that here we are less than a year after that victory in, in Italy. And it looks like he's gone. And it, it shows how quickly things turn in this business. Um, what will be a shame is if Formula One loses Daniel, because you have to believe that if the right team principal and the right team took him under their wing, uh, they, could, they could get, they get, get more out of Daniel than McLaren has managed to extract. And there's, I think Oleg even says in the article, there's a, there's a problem between Daniel and McLaren. There's a difficulty there. There's something that perhaps we haven't really fully understood. And maybe they haven't fully understood that's just not worked. And that can happen in relationships. So let's see what happens. But, um, you know, uh, f my final point in it is if Formula One loses Daniel, if he does disappear, uh, from from F1, I've no doubt he's going to have a big career elsewhere in in motorsport. Uh, we shouldn't feel too sorry for him because he's made a vast amount of money out of out of Formula One, and so from a purely financial perspective, it's he's had a very lucrative career, and that's been that's been terrific. He will feel that he never you know quite achieved his potential, and that will be that will be the one thing that probably he thinks about um, as he gets older. You know, there was probably better things he could have done from a purely performance perspective in his career. But um, it is what it is. And opportunities are few and far between in F1. The business of sort of application, whether someone's an instinctive driver or whether they learn from the data is quite interesting, isn't it? You know, Matt, you've spoken to these people and you, you mentioned that he's an instinctive driver. Is that part of the barrier when he says, I don't, I don't understand where this eight tenths difference comes from is, is, this business that he drives on instinct and perhaps doesn't engage with the data or isn't able to understand it in the same way as some of the more analytical drivers. Is that kind of the heart of the problem, do we think? I think so. And that that eight-tenth of a second gap, the fact it still remains is, is quite telling. Like, If I can make a comparison, Latifi, since the British Grand Prix when he had his chassis change, he's taken a stride forward and he's, he's recovered sort of half his deficit to Albon. So you can go, whether it was a cracked chassis or at least the way the car was constructed, there was a clear and obvious 
sort of discrepancy between pre-Silverstone and post-Silverstone. Ricardo doesn't have this because it's been going on over two seasons now. And because McLaren have regressed from dueling with Ferrari last season to now being in the midfield, that 8 tenth gap is no longer covering four cars, it's covering 10 cars. And so when he's at the lower reaches of Q2... And McLaren, after all the financial the financial ringer is put through, now has to answer to a lot more investors, a lot more high up people. The points difference or those 10 positions between him and Norris are so much harder to justify. I think that's also a slight tangent why McLaren has probably gone slightly cold on, on its IndyCar talent in terms of um, Patricia Ward and Colton Herter. Because if they come in and don't excel, that's a case that's a lot harder to justify than... Uh, Piastri not succeeding, who we believe they've gone for, and has sort of been made in the typical mould of a, a of an a F1 driver by by winning the junior championships. And then I also wonder how much sort of Norris, being one of the best prepared rookies Formula One's ever seen since sort of Hamilton, because he had so much private testing. And yes, he's from you know a wealthy background, so so he was afforded that luxury, but it shouldn't be held against him that when he's had days pounding round Brands Hatch in an F3 car private test being able to have that time to correlate what does this dampest change do to the car and understanding that's behaviour that he's then settled at McLaren and able to lead the direction in a way that Ricardo hasn't been able to when all those factors play around and obviously you have the debate as well as you know Ricardo could be good but it could be just Norris is so exceptional that you know maybe we're looking at this we've got the wrong perspective it's actually Norris being mesmeric rather than Ricardo really sort of falling behind this that's created a huge gap but I think when all of those are put together the fact that Brown I think the, the quote he said wasn't it there are mechanisms within Ricardo's career that we can we can part ways that's this side of Gunter Steiner that's about as emphatic as you'll ever get as a hurry up come on you need to do better so for him to do that is quite extreme and I believe the understanding is is Brown more pushing that narrative and that Actually, Andreas Seidel uh, was more in favour of keeping Ricardo, But now that they've gone for Piastri, I'd read that again to be a team principal-led decision rather than the CEO-led decision. So if, if Ricardo's fallen out of favour on that side, again, it's a bit of a worry that the evidence is mounting against him. So I think, although it's a, it's a loss of face, it could be interpreted as a backward step. I think considering the, the factors in the driver market now, I think returning to Alpine or Renault is, is probably what's best. And actually to pick up on something Mark said is that, you know, Alonso has been sold the Aston Martin dream. Aston Martin, we have, have has this new facility. They have the investment. You know, there's obviously a tunnel vision to get to the front, but Enstone has had the big investment. It's it's had, you know, the offices redone and, and restructured. And Alonso's seen that and not been sold of the dream. So if Ricardo's then going there, Okay, he might be closer or have the legs over Ocon and, and look better in the intra team fight, but whether he's, you know, then gonna be swapping ninth and tenth place for third and fourth is probably still up for debate and that's a polite way of saying he's probably not gonna be fighting for those podiums. I remember going to Enstone uh, a few years ago and let's let let's make this point very plain. It's what seven years since Renault uh, reacquired that team uh, that had been Lotus, which means we're two years past the the due date for Cyril Abitbull's original, sort of slightly misbegotten five year plan. But my main memory of going to um, Enstone, where during my freelance years I'd, I'd hosted events in their little Teletubby house, where there's the wind tunnel on one side, there's the CFD facility on the other, and there's a big theatre where um, guests were 
were showing the race on the big screen and able to speak to the engineers. Uh, and, and I remember go, going to see, have, have a meeting with the with the PR team to sort of discuss what we were going to do in future issues of the mag, what sort of content, as our bosses would call it, we could, we could create together. And I, I was invited not into the main factory itself, but into the Teletubby house, into the the room that had been where Dirk De Beer and the CFD team were based. And it just loads of cardboard boxes everywhere, a few desks. Uh, and I said, yeah, didn't this used to be where the CFD facility was? Where is it now? And... Um, she said, "We haven't got it yet. It doesn't exist." Uh, and I was kind of like, "Where did where did these where did these computers go? What happened to them? What what, what what's going on?" And this is a few years ago now, but I kind of thought at that moment, "Well, it's going to take you more than five years to get back to the front if you your first job is to go down to PC World or whatever and buy some CFD clusters." I, I remember when when Mark cast doubt over Alpine's ability to get back to the front of the grid, you, Matt, nodded your head sagely, as you are now. I mean, are you broadly in agreement with my assessment that whatever's happened, there's still a long, there's still a lot of runway left before they get to where they want to go? Yeah, Aston Martin's piling in the millions. McLaren, we know, is, you know, racing to get a new wind tunnel online. And as you say, Enstone's had the money thrown at it. You know, it's had a couple of different CEOs now and, and team principals. They've tried the restructure. And the Alonso leaving, I think, is a bigger picture. You know, the, the importance of having that two-year deal because he's been on the outside of F1 now and, and he knows what that feels like. He wants to stay on the inside so the longer the contract, the better. How that Stroll-Alonso relationship will play out will just be incredible to watch. But I think, you know, a part of it is... Okay, he's a two-time world champion and he's he's 41 now, but still selling the dream. Alpine's case of of those three teams is probably the the least convincing. It's interesting, isn't it? Otmar Safnauer, the the team principal, former team principal of Aston Martin, had to leave because he didn't want to serve two popes or too many kiss too many popes rings or whatever it was that he cited as his reason for leaving. Um, I wonder what Marsh, Marsh thought about that. I don't even have a ring, Otmar. He's gone to Alpine and he said, you know, the thing with drivers of Fernando's age uh, is is that. You know, they get to a point where physically they, they kind of fall off a cliff in that sort of combination of physical and mental ability to drive a Formula One car. And he, he likened it to the Michael Schumacher situation, who is someone who, um, right up until the minute, he was kind of booted out of Formula One prematurely by Ferrari in favour of Kimi Raikkonen. Um, he then sort of came back five or six years later, and you know, literally a shadow of his former self. Uh, it, it was only There was only a four-year gap, wasn't it? That was the interregnum. Um, literally a, a man shambles and nowhere near the, the driver he had been just a few years earlier. Can I put a quick question to both of you for your, your experience? Um, Is it because we're old? No, <laughs> because of your holistic view of motorsport. If we get to, whether it's next season or by the end of this season, we find out that... On Alpine's watch, Alonso has been able to go and Piastri will not be racing for them, so they've lost their protégé, who they funded. Does there need to be a full guy to take the hit for that, like a visible high-profile sacking to show that there is some accountability? Because that they've been, you know, comprehensively outmaneuvered in the market. And in other organisations, someone, someone would leave because of that to show we're taking action. 
Well, it's a bad move to speculate about sackings, but um, it, it, let's let, let's broadly talk about why you know someone might be playing about to play the game of spin the P forty five. Good question. I mean, I think that's why I mentioned Luca De Meo, you know, chief executive of Renault Group, because at the very highest level, if you were looking at Alpine as a business unit and looking at how that brand is going, they've got major major plans for product development, a lot of money being spent on on the forthcoming range of Alpine cars, which are, are going to be rolled out, as I said, all electric. And you look at what's, what's happening in Formula One, and you think, well, there's something amiss here. Um, you know, spent a lot of money on Daniel Ricciardo. Um, he's left. Similarly with Alonso, he's left. These are not great votes of confidence from drivers who have won Grand Prix, and in Fernando's case, won a couple of world championships for that team, you know, at Enstone. He came, he saw, uh, he didn't like the commitment, he didn't, and he, he's taken the opportunity to go to Aston. So, will it lead to sackings? Well, of course, one of the difficulties is that uh, Laura Rossi is the chief executive of Alpine Cars, so he can't sack himself um, from, from, <laughs> from running the team. Um, he's quite a young guy. Uh, he's had a stellar career in management in the automotive industry and in, in the United States. Got a very impressive CV. A little bit of me worries that when executives step into the world of Formula One, it can it can appear terribly exciting and sexy, and and you, and you can get carried away with the euphoria of being in Formula One. And I'm not saying Laurent Rossi is naive, but he is quite new to to the sport and I mean I commented I'm not sure if it was on this podcast but I commented there was a team principals meeting earlier on this year there was a photograph of the dinner which was circulated the social media a couple of the teams had two people there and Alpine had both Otmar and and uh, Lauren there and I thought to myself these are warning signs there needs to be one leader Somebody needs to wrap their arm around the team and they take responsibility and they do become the fall guy. And I think we're going to talk about you know team principals in a moment because there's a feature in the magazine about what does a team principal do during the weekend. And, and that feature in the magazine for me, I, f- I found fascinating because one thing that's very clear is that the role of team principal as we know it has changed fundamentally in the last 10 years to the point where in some teams, the team principal is not a team principal. In my they are not the chief executive. And in fact, they're not even given that denomination, that, that, that title in some teams. So when I look at Alpine, I worry that there are two leaders because there needs to be one leader. Um, Otmar has gone in there and inherited whatever he's inherited contractually and relationship wise. And obviously he's answerable to Lauren Rossi and you know who's the chief executive of Alpine and I say Laurent was quite new to F1 and so I don't think that that I mean you used the word careless earlier I don't think it's it's sort of carelessness so much as naivety that believe they believe what they've been told by people um they believed that you know Piastri and and obviously Piastri is part of Piastri's management is Weber you know Mark Weber you know they believe what they've been told and they believed, well, these guys are going to be our future. And that's gone in completely the opposite opposite direction. And that's just because, again, it goes back to it's a cutthroat environment. So I don't think, personally, don't think that anyone will lose their job simply because it's the people who were responsible for what's happened who 
who run the business anyway, so I can't see that they're going to change themselves. But I do think that there needs to be a, I mean, at the very top level, there needs to be a rethink from Alpine about the way in which they do F1 to make sure that it becomes utterly results focused. And unless you're totally results focused, you know, forget five-year plans. Five-year plans are actually irrelevant now in all of business, never mind Formula One. You need a three-year plan that helps you to get somewhere good. And when you're not making progress and you're not actually getting into the mix, you have to question what the fundamentals are that need that need changing. And uh, I think that I think uh, therefore, you know, for me, Alpine has a much bigger question mark, not about should one individual go because they've mishandled things. It's about where where is Alpine in the pecking order in F1, and how can they realistically prepare? For, uh, for the 2026 era in a manner that actually meaningfully means that they can compete to win races and go for the world championship against Mercedes-Benz, against Ferrari, against potentially Red Bull Porsche, against Audi, against Aston Martin or whatever they become and McLaren, etc. And it is a massive challenge. So at the moment, it doesn't look particularly promising, but maybe Luca De Mayo has something up his sleeve that he can he can provide Lauren Rossi and the team with the with the ability to 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 take on the adults who who consistently win in F one. We you mentioned our team principles feature. We we, we can dig into that because uh, we chose Aston Martin's Mike Crack uh, for that as a relatively new team principal, and it's very much a job of two halves, isn't it? Like you say, the same job title covers kind of a. A, a different remit across several teams, but certainly at Aston Martin, it seems very. You have this very much divided role where at the factory it's wall-to-wall meetings with project groups and various things, and you know keep keeping on top of all that and ensuring that everything's travelling in the right direction. And then at the race weekend, they sort of have a slightly more global view, and they have to take a step back and let the people kind of get on with their jobs and that that's what came out of it for me was that Mike Crack is from an engineering background but as he sort of slips into this role that's quite new to him he's trying to sort of very gently be across everything without getting in people's faces so he goes out on the track walk uh, I'm 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 assured that Otmar never went out on the track walk with, with the drivers and engineers uh, at uh, Jordan stroke uh, Force India stroke Racing Point stroke Aston Martin. But Mike likes to go out and actually have that kind of bonding time with the drivers and their engineers. And then once once the cars are circulating, he he might get involved, but the, the, the engineer talks to the drivers, the team principal doesn't talk to the drivers. And you, you see that in quite a few teams, Others maybe less so. It's it's kind of quite interesting, isn't it? That dynamic of of what the team principal does. I, I'm going to jump in before Matt responds because uh, Matt, I thought I'd, I'd give you you um, sort of my take on it as a as someone who yeah you know have been in the sport a while and uh, read that read that article and did not recognise did not recognise the description of what a team principal does. Really, I, I read the first few paragraphs and I thought, okay, so when when when's the reality kick in? And it didn't uh, <laughs> at any stage. It was an operations director or technical director 
uh, role that I read. But actually, even the, some of the front of house stuff, I mean, even technical directors do front of house stuff where they do interviews and, 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 and all of that. I mean, and it really cuts to the chase of what's changed. We've gone from a sport where the team principals owned the team and they, they owned it and they managed it and they were chief executive. And the team principles of that, and I'm talking about the Ron Dennis's and the Frank Williams's and uh, uh, I suppose Eddie Jordan and uh, and actually I'd include Christian Horner in this as a kind of, a, uh, even though he doesn't own uh, Red Bull Racing or a share in Red Bull Racing, but Christian came into the sport very much at that time is now the longest standing team principal. And, and Christian operates very much, I would say, in kind of a traditional traditional role where you're look you you're outward facing you're looking you're looking at the sponsorship you're looking at the commercial deals you're looking at you're dealing with f1 you're dealing with fia on big political matters you're dealing with um obviously driver contracts you're overseeing that side of the business you're making sure that you recruit the strongest possible technical team and then let them get on with the job which includes track walks and things like that team principal doesn't need to be doing that and you shouldn't need to do a track walk to get to know your drivers well and build a rapport with people. I mean, you can do that in lots of other ways. Um, team principals sitting in debriefs isn't something that I'm particularly familiar with. Um, uh, again, what's that for? Are you checking up on people? Or are you are you calling the shots? Because you shouldn't be. I mean, if, if you're doing it because you don't have anything else to do, well, who else is doing those important jobs? Who's, who's you know, on a Friday night, if you're able to spend an hour and a half, two hours in a debrief, who's having dinner with the sponsors, who's taking out the driver's managers to make sure that when the driver contract comes up for renewal, they do actually sign with you and don't jump ship and go elsewhere and, and all of those things. And, 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 and looking after the big picture, you know, you as a team principal, team principal stroke CEO role, you're looking after the overall business. You're not looking after detail. And that feature really, I had a degree of astonishment at, uh, what was included and what wasn't included. And then I, I thought, well, who else is doing those roles? And I and my takeaway is that those roles are being, those bigger roles are being looked after by other people. And that's because teams have broadened their management structure. So they've got commercial direct, not commercial directors in the old sense, but they've got chief commercial officers who look after the sponsors. And then you have an owner like Lauren Stroll who, is clearly a very powerful individual and powerful in terms of the way he operates as well. So ultimately it's his team. In my view, he's closer to team principles of old. But then of course you also have Martin Whitmarsh, chief executive, but there's a little footnote in the piece saying, but he doesn't really come to races. So actually what you have is you have a broadening of the management structures with everything being subdivided up into smaller and smaller units. And again, it goes back to the point I made about Alpine. Who's in charge? Who's actually got, you know, the, the buck stops here? Is it Lauren Stroll? Is it Mike Crack? Is it Martin Whitmarsh? I'm sure Matt Bishop could give us an answer as to who, who the buck stops with. They would be, have an organizational chart and they could tell us. But... An organogram. Organogram, you know, but I, I came away from that feature thinking, wow, things have changed to a great deal. It becomes too easy for people to swerve responsibility when things aren't, aren't you know, aren't happening. And, you know, I, I worked with Eddie uh, at Jordan for a long time and, you know, he we, we all have our, our strengths and weaknesses. But one of Eddie's great strengths was he always said, look, it's my name that's over the door. The buck stops with me. If we're if we're 
not succeeding as a business, if we're not profitable, if we're losing money, it's, it's my head on the chopping block and we have got to drive this business forward. And he was very strong in the way he would give a technical director the wherewithal to, to go out and deliver, uh, work on the commercial side, work on the political side, you know, all of that. Very, very strong entrepreneurial skills. That's not what you're seeing from a lot of team principals today. And I think it's one of the perhaps inherent weaknesses of some of the lesser teams. Final thing I'll say on this, very telling in the article where they talk about the fact that Total Wolf's the only person who doesn't sit in, uh, one of the few team principals who doesn't sit in the pit wall, that he, you know, he sits in the garage. I think that tells you a lot about Total Wolf and his leadership style. He knows that he doesn't have a role to play directly in running the race. Of course, he would come on the radio if there was a major political drama full unfolding. And that's where, again, as the, over, as the overall, if he ever does come on the radio, you know it's serious because he isn't supposed to really be there. But Toto is a delegator and the people on the pit wall, they're responsible for running the race. Toto's job is to, is to oversee it. And he's usually sitting there in the garage with a, a chief executive of a major sponsor, uh, you know, Jim Ratcliffe, uh, you know, fellow shareholder in the team standing beside him. He's looking after the business side of it. The thing is that the title team principal covers a fairly broad and often overlapping set of descriptions with particular teams. But also, as, as you said, we are well beyond the era where the team principal is the person whose name is above the door. Now, Toto is a little bit of an outlier in this case because he's a shareholder as well, whereas the sort of the, the Mike Crack style of team principal is very much an employee and a link in the chain, and, and that chain goes higher up. And maybe there's an argument to say Aston Martin is one of those organisations that is maybe a little too corporate because they have lots of high-powered marketing people. There's the chap at the top whose name I, I can't remember off the top of my head. There's Rob Bloom, who they got from McLaren, who's also got a C-suite title involved in marketing. There's an awful lot of marketing people, and that's reflected in the number of stickers there are on the car and how well they're doing commercially. But it's obviously something that they they ha they see a dividing line between the you lot get money and you lot make car go quickly and in in their world the the team principal his his job description is to be ultimately responsible for for the performance of the team on the race weekend it's again interesting to 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 see how team structures and leadership structures have evolved i think you're referring to jefferson slack who's managing director yes uh, managing director. That's because he has he has a very strange name, which is why it's gone down the cracks of my mind. Yeah, I mean, and he, you know, his background was um, uh, you know again across um, across international you know sports business and um, Aston Martin put in place a very strong commercial structure, and as you say, it's reaped it's reaped uh, rewards for them. I've had a I've had a formidable sponsorship gathering spree. Uh, they've got such a fantastic lineup of backers. Really, have wonderful brands to be associated with. Uh, it's the kind of thing that, again, from a from my experience, you know, is it's not easy to do. And they are, and on that basis, they've performed incredibly well. Stand up to the operational side of the team to deliver. So my take of the Mike Crack piece is that you know commercial doesn't come under him. He, his job is to deliver success for the race team. 
so he's out there you know doing the track walk and in debriefs and and kind of overseeing overseeing operations so again it's to me to my mind it wasn't a team principal role it was more of a kind of operations director uh, role but there are a lot of chiefs there and uh, there are a lot of chiefs on the on the team side as well two of the jordan stalwarts uh, andy green and uh, andy stevenson of course are still there and I, I quite honestly two better races you could not possibly imagine one of the things that i've you know often commented on before about uh, aston is they've taken what really was a corner shop shop team and they're trying to and, and they're turning it into a, um, a sainsbury's and they're turning it into a giant and that's not easy to do and I think, again, when you look at how roles, as you build an organization larger, there, I think there is a temptation to say, well, well, we'll chop up all the roles into easily managed parts. But that introduces complexity into communications, into operational management, control, delivery. You know, are you, are you able to keep the agility that you have as a small team? And that was always the thing which was a question mark was could could a force India, which often did a giant killing act, could it really be scaled into a championship winning team as Aston Martin? And the team principal uh, brought in to do that was going to have a massive task. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the next years unfold. Aston aren't having a great time um, as a car company, uh, as, as, as we've discussed a few times in the past. So I think this this feature on, on what does a team principal do it, it kind of I, I've, it went beyond that it went into the heart of the philosophy of how do you run and manage a Formula One team um, and you know Ferrari is quite a traditional structure you have that clear leadership under Mattia Bonotto I think as I said with Red Bull Christian I think is is, is kind of traditional in his way of operating and does it extremely well. And although they're very different personalities, I think I've said this before, is that, you know, Christian, there's a reason Christian and Toto are extremely successful at what they do. They have a very successful leadership and management style, whatever their critics may say. And, uh, you know, they've dominated the sport for the last 10 years. I think a lot of the other teams could do with learning from that. Um, I think when I did my interview with David Coulthard um, for the magazine a couple of months ago, one of the things David said to me in, in the interview, we were talking about leadership, you know, we we're talking about team principles, Christian. I said to and I, I said to David, you know, is Christian Horner a good, is he a good leader? Is he a good team principal? And Christian, he was like, absolutely he is. I don't think it made the feature, but David and I then went on to talk about who's not a good team principal. And Dave, David said to me, he said, so many of the team principals in Formula One today are effectively invisible. He said, you literally, there, there's no visibility of them. And he said, when you look at their team's results, you have to say, there's a reason why, you, you know, what you see is what you get. And if you're not seeing someone who's out there in front of it all, pushing like crazy to win, you, 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 you're going to get the compromise. And, and that's what, and I think there is a really big piece on that within F1. And I looked down the pit lane and, you know, there is a, I would have a con I would have an ongoing concern that the reason that some teams will never ever make the breakthrough is that they still haven't their shareholders still haven't fully understood that you need an incredibly strong type of leader to be successful in Formula One and if you simply have an employee who has a contract for three years doesn't matter what type you give them that's 
that's never going to deliver what you as an organization you need a much more concerted uh leadership philosophy to be put in place i'm very interested i mean matt you're at far more races than i am so i mean you, you would interact with a lot of the team principals you know what what's your view on that i mean there is only 10 of them so it's not like it's a massive number of people for us to keep our eye on some of them are clearly very impressive and some of them less so absolutely and uh it's interesting sort of the the distinction between some of the roles so like uh at mclaren andreas seidel how much he spends an awful lot of time with media doing sort of you know uh uh sort of um roundtable interviews and and is in the public eye but it was also we know from his background in particular that he's so engineering led and and the success he brought to porsche and although i I mentioned earlier about the drivers that you know brown wanted to go one route side or potentially another there seems to be a good deal of autonomy on that side and so right you've won le mans you've masterminded that 919 project this is this is yours brown has has taken a more sort of uh more of a seat upstairs if you like whereas to go back to the aston martin example if you look at that sort of chain of command you have stroll at the top then whitmarsh and then mike crack as part of this sort of push forward to the front of the grid he he sits as someone for me that you know in two three years time if they're still eighth or ninth he's you know what i was saying about alpine he he would be like a fool guy to me someone who's almost almost sacrificial and I, that's that's not to disrespect mike crack that operation was restructured and then he was bought in whereas seidel has been fundamental to the restructure and leading the success of mclaren and it's at what point they integrate and what point slot in sort of is is how much are a linchpin of that team i think's quite quite interesting to me anyway but again if you look at mclaren you talk about andreas seidel's team principal and and then you've got zach brown as what zach's title is he ceo's comma racing i think ceo yeah yeah i mean the, the i mean the mclaren structure to me is quite well defined in that zach very much has a commercial hat on and he's out there doing the deals wheeling and dealing and then clearly you know, working with Andreas to to you know get the drivers sorted and 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 also Zach's taking on the political uh, side of the team. You know, whether it's to do with replacing Ricardo or or whatever. So, but there's quite clear sort of demarcation, and I quite like structures like that. I mean, you can have two people at the top of a Formula One team when there is that demarcation, because essentially it's not that diff- much different from a Patrick Head you know, Frank Williams sort of scenario, that kind of one's responsible for wheeling and dealing and the other one's responsible for, for making sure the cars are fast and the team wins races. And, you know, I think that still stands the test of time. And this is where when you have two people here on purely the the management side, you kind of think, well, so who's looking after the direction? Who's looking after the technical side? And if and again, if you get lots of people on the technical side, who's looking after the commercial side? You need that. You do need that kind of de- demarcation. So this is why I say with with, uh, with Alpine, I kind of look at it and I see Otmar and Laurent sort of effectively, you know, on one side of the business. And I kind of think, well, so what, what about all the other stuff, you know? And then again, when you look at you look at Mike Crack and you say, well, I mean, perhaps it's him. As team principal, and then Jefferson Slack is the commercial guy. But then there's Martin and there's Lawrence, and it's it's quite top heavy, I suppose. And and I would take your point, and I can understand. You know, obviously, 
you go to the races and you meet these people on a regular basis and you wouldn't want to be disrespectful to anyone and say, oh, well, you know, he's for the high jump any moment if, if everything goes pear-shaped. But that's going to, that is the reality of, the, again, the new world that we work in, it's, which is that all of these people are employees, which means they're all dispensable. Um, I mean, to, to use a Zach Brownism, there's always a mechanism to get rid of anybody. Um, you know, it only takes a bit of money. It doesn't even matter if you've got a contract in place. You can sit down with someone, look them in the eyes and say, look, this isn't working. Um, how much will it take for you to clear off? So it's a, um, we're, we're in a different era and, um, but it will be interesting to, to sit, to see how this, how this evolves, because I think team principle to me is such a strong, uh, title to have and to me, it's been diluted over the years, and certainly over the last 10 to 15 years. That, that title has been diluted in many respects to the point where it doesn't mean today what it, what it, did, what it used to mean. And uh, I think some of the teams are worse off for them. Well, I say, you know, no one is indispensable, only undispensed. <laughs> are you going to dispense? So, with, are you going to dispense with us and end this podcast? <laughs> it's 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 coming up to that time, but um, you know, we, we've we've not covered the a couple of things um, right about literally, literally as the PDF documents of this issue were going to the printers, uh, we had to call a halt because the uh, FIA finally agreed the shape of the uh, 2026 engine regulations, which ordinarily would be a little bit meh. Well, you know, that's a few years ago away. Who cares? But it, it's an announcement we've been waiting for since late June, and we're not the only ones because at the beginning of July, there was the Austrian Grand Prix at which Red Bull was very eager to, ta-da, its new arrangement with Porsche. And of course, because Porsche didn't want to commit until the new engine regulations were uh, set in stone, that didn't happen. And it, it is now looking like Porsche is not just going to become an engine supplier, but is actually going to take uh, a 50% stake in Red Bull technology, which is the legal entity which which builds the F1 cars. Uh, and we know that this is the plan because of this, you know, fuddy-duddy old competition laws and red tape that our politicians hate so much. Um, the, uh, the two parties have had to file notices of, of their putative joint venture in various territories. So we know it is uh, a 50% uh, joint venture. Is, is, this, is this a dream come true for FOM and, and the FIA, uh, the, having, having shaped these regulations in the hope of attracting new entrants? They've had to make a little bit of a compromise, but, but now new entrants are starting to come in. There's been a hope for a, a widening of the pool of engine supply. I think there's there's three things I find most interesting about the rules getting signed off. First of all, is that the teams, are F1, incumbent and interested engine partners, which we know the Volkswagen Group, they had had them signed off for a couple of months. The delay came from the FIA side, but particularly from the president, who's for this matter has been decidedly sort of interventionist to sort of uh, tweak tweak certain elements, or or maybe not even that, but is it is uh, it was certainly him sort of the 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 draft was left on his desk and it was waiting awaiting his signatures finally gone through on terms of it reminds me of my expenses claim <laughs> from the Austrian Grand Prix but do continue in terms of it being a coup for F1 absolutely because since 2017 when liberty media um came in they've had unequivocally the greatest sporting campaign of all time in drive to survive um i think 
Netflix incredibly pay F1 for the privilege of, of filming in the paddock. And so under Liberty Media's ownership, revenues have boomed, audience have exploded, the demographic has shifted, they've cracked America, we've got three races. But the one thing they haven't done up until this point is cracked the automotive market. Okay, you've had Alpine and Aston Martin come in, but they were effectively just fancy rebrands. You know, if you if you scrub away at the sticker, you'll see you'll see Renault and Racing Point. And in fact, really, you've actually had a manufacturer leave during Liberty Media's tenure with, with Honda pulling out of its engine programme. So to have a pucker name like Porsche is, is a massive, massive coup. And it, it, it speaks to sort of... Um, now the former the former CEO of the Volkswagen Group, Herbert Diaz, was, was speaking to residents of Wolfsburg, where the company is, is based, and explaining to them uh, that you know this is now the time to capitalise on F1 because it's so popular. You know, we we if we can be winning in sort of six seven years time, we believe you know this is a way to capitalise. We can keep Porsche at the forefront to sell the most amount of road cars, which is just all about. We have to be winning, and and, and he mentioned Audi as well, which is 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 the deals less not as far as long, but they've set Daimler specifically in their target. So that's the way they're coming in. They're coming in, you know, Mark was saying about, you need to have the, the sort of, the, the, the gusto behind you, if you like, the, the, they are coming in to win. So it's a, it's a major coup for Liberty Media. The final thing I want to say is that, um, without speculating too much, the, the owner of Red Bull, Dietrich Maschitz, has been less visible in recent times. The 50% sale of Red Bull technology, so the race team, in addition to the powertrain, is the first indication that, you know, this this company that has done so much for F1, not just the team, but all the pro mode of running cars on, you know, ski slopes or whatever, it's the first indication of a contingency plan. And I think that's, that's quite interesting as well. And that means Porsche and Red Bull working together. Porsche, traditionally quite... Germanic's too much of a cliche, but quite procedural red bull obviously very successful but it's been sort of the maverick of the paddock where it's the energy station blasting music the way they've done things how those two philosophies will coalesce will be really interesting to see how that plays out they've talked about before any major deal can get signed off we have to you know and we we know it will happen we've seen the moroccan documents that originally said i think the 4th of august it'd be announced we know the deal is happening but as recently as the hungarian grand prix christian horn was still talking about we need to evaluate whether you know, we will get on that horrible word, whether there'll be synergies between the two parties. I know it's an awful, <laughs> awful word. But how that relationship plays out will be, uh, will be fascinating to see. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mark. Terrible publishing in joke there about lazy writers who end features with the phrase fascinating. It'll be fascinating to see dot, dot, dot. Dot, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think I, I agree with everything, Matt, Matt you've just said um, about, you know, the, the coup uh, that has been brought about as, at the end of this long sequence of successes by Liberty since they took over Formula One in 2017. So everything, your summary of that was just is great. So I hope Liberty are listening. Uh, job well done, uh, men and women. Um, I think the... The, the Red Bull situation, again, uh, I think when I did the interview with DC, we talked about Christian and, and what would happen in the longer term of Red Bull. You know, Christian's been there since uh, 2005. Adrian joined at the end of that year. You know, that partnership has been there for a long time. I think the you know, in this in this uh, this issue of GP Racing, there's uh, an article about Red Bull Technologies and the road car program and keeping Adrian uh, on board, and I think certainly for the next three or four years, 
you know, that'll be the same. But it will be fascinating to dot, 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 to see what happens in 2026, because by then Christian will have been team principal there for over 20 years. Adrian will be getting into his late 60s. You mentioned Dietrich Mateschitz. Dietrich is 78. Helmut Marko is 79. So if you advance four years from now, both those gentlemen will be in there, sort of actually getting in, in well into their 80s. Um, change will come. And I think one of the really big questions will be what happens, you know, Christian Horner is still young enough that he could lead that team into the future. Will will the Porsche-Red Bull relationship work in such a way that Porsche say to Christian, just you keep on doing the job, you keep on running the team, or will or will it become, going back to our earlier conversation, will we start to see a broadening of the management structure where Christian has a particular role, then someone else has a particular role, and, and, and so on and so forth. So it may change. I mean, I, for one, really hope that Christian continues as team principal of a Red Bull Porsche team, because I would like to see, I'd like to see that. Um, I'd like to see how it could really flourish, and I think Christian would. I think he would massively enjoy, not even the challenge, just the opportunity. I mean, I think Christian's done enough now to prove that he can he can run a highly successful Formula One team. So it's more a question of he, of him being given the opportunity to take it on to the next stage. That would be really fascinating because the flip side is if Christian sees that he's being undermined, if the if the structure changes in a way that he wasn't to be happy with, I've no doubt Christian would would go off and do, do something else because, again, he is young enough to, to go and do that. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. But it's great that the new regulations are out. We need to see those Porsche and Audi uh, announcements. Um, always makes me slightly nervous when we haven't finally seen the statement yet come out. Uh, but it's very exciting times. It'll be great for Formula One. But I go back to it again, and I'll just finish on an earlier point I made. You know, on, on the list, uh, Matt, of be careful what you wish for, if I was sitting looking at Liberty, I'd be saying, okay, so you've, you've, you've begun to crack the automotive space. You've got these six or, you know, I mean, depending on what Honda do, it could be, you know, Honda might come back in again. Um, you've got these sort of half a dozen car manufacturers. Three of them are going to be really disappointed, you know, by 2029, 30. Now, that might, that's just must be maybe being slightly glass half empty. But... That tends to be the cycle that happens with car manufacturers. You get a load of them come in, then reality bites. Then, of course, it's difficult, it's expensive. Like they're not making the headway. They're not getting the success. Then you start getting withdrawals and, and all of that. But anyway, that, that's for the future. For the moment, we're on an upward trajectory for F1, and it's great news. So uh, yeah. roll on 2026. Uh, reality bites, a pretentious and slightly tedious film starring Winona Ryder, if uh, memory serves. Um, uh, now, we do, and sadly, we, we've, we've run out of time to talk about it because the, the finish line is in sight. But um, Matt Q has, as I alluded to uh, a few moments ago, taken over uh, the back page column uh, of GP Racing and this month casts his critical eye over the recent Netflix Brad Pitt announcement that uh, a new Formula One film is in the offing because uh, it's uh, it's 30 years since Days of Thunder failed to put Top Gun on four wheels and it's fair to say Matt has opinions about certain Hollywood tropes uh, unfortunately uh, we shall not be able to discuss them today so uh, without further ado and despite the fact that I'm travelling at my car's theoretical top speed I'm going to glance over at the 
driver of the car I'm trying to overtake, share a look of grudging mutual respect, then change up a gear and make use of the extra 10 centimetre of throttle travel which has magically appeared since the last shot of the footwell and I will drive us towards the chequered flag of this podcast. Um, there's plenty more in this month's issue of GP Racing. Matt Hughes' maiden appearance as our back page columnist, interviews with Carlos Sainz, Mercedes technical director Mike Elliott. And of course, as previously discussed, we take a look at what team principals actually do during a Grand Prix weekend. We answer the question why Adrian Newey is building a new road car, although it's actually a track car, uh, at, at great expense. Start saving now uh, £5 million I believe is the uh, price sticker on the RB17. So it's it's definitely time to start speaking to your financial advisor. Thank you very much to my guests. Uh, happy sailing and we'll see you again soon, Mark Gallagher. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure, as always. Matt Q, I do hope that you've been consulting the wisdom of YouTube when it comes to packing your suitcase. Just out of shot, actually, I've got my suitcase down here and a, a few pairs of clean pants to put in, but I'll, I'll consult the YouTubes for a bit of uh, last-minute advice. I'm still new to this. With the flight situation at the moment, it's always it's always important to have a clean pair of pants in your hand luggage. Uh, anyway, thank you to you, the listeners. Uh, you can tune in to gpracing.com to find out about all our latest subscriptions offers. If you're wondering where in the UK you can find GP Racing on the newsstands, you can visit the handy store finder operated by our distributors. Go to seymour.co.uk. That's Seymour spelled in the style of Springfield's resident physician, Dr. Seymour Butts, uh, seymour.co.uk, put in your postcode. You can find out where your nearest edition of GP Racing is on the shelves. Thanks also to our producer, Martin Lee. We'll see you next month. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.